Hello there, and welcome to the Paradox Podcast. I wanna give a huge shout out to our online donors who give through paradoxgiving.com. We appreciate your generosity. Today's teaching is entitled, The Anger of Nahum. If you were with us last week on the podcast, then you know that when we dove into the short book of Nahum, we discovered that according to Nahum, God is very angry. God threatens to melt the hills in Nahum's writings. Not only that, but Nahum asks the question, who can escape the indignation of God? He also talks about the soon coming devastation and destruction that God will bring with God. But as we talked about last week, God's anger is not a general anger toward all of humanity, but instead is targeted. And when you consider chapter 1, verse 1, it becomes apparent that God is angry with the city Nineveh. What is absolutely essential to understanding the book of Nahum is that we need to know that Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. Now, Assyria was a very influential empire within world history. Dr. Marion Feldman from Johns Hopkins University once said that ancient Assyria is considered by historians to be the first true empire. Now, the Assyrians, according to Dr. Feldman, were military innovators and merciless conquerors. During their conquests, they used siege tactics. Now, I want to focus on the word siege tactics because that's going to become apparent when we read Nahum chapter 3 in just a few moments. So Dr. Feldman says, during their conquests, the Assyrians used siege tactics and cruel punishments for those who opposed them, including impalement and flame. Historian and author John Green expands on this cruelty by telling us that the Assyrians would often cut off the appendages of those who rebelled against the empire. Assyria's favorite appendage to slice off of rebels' bodies was their noses because noses were obviously visible. And you can imagine when you saw someone without a nose, you would say, I don't have much interest in rebelling against the Assyrian Empire. Returning to Dr. Feldman, she continues to expand on the cruelty of the Assyrian Empire. She says the growth of their empire was due in part to their strategy of deporting local populations, then shifting them around the empire to fulfill local needs. This broke people's bonds with their homelands and severed loyalties among local groups. Now, what's interesting about Dr. Feldman's words is that we have a biblical record of the Assyrian Empire doing this to the nation of Israel. Specifically in 722 BCE, when the nation of Israel was split into two, with Israel to the north and Judah to the south, Assyria invaded, attacked, and leveled the northern nation of Israel. When it became apparent that their doom was imminent, Israel turned to their southern neighbors in Judah and begged them for help. Please intervene and help us fight the Assyrians. The people of Judah recognized that Israel was not going to defeat the Assyrians, and so they responded no. Israel then was destroyed, and the survivors were scattered throughout the Assyrian empire in order to break their familial bonds. Now, Assyria then turned to Judah, which is where David's descendant was reigning on the throne, a man named King Ahaz. And they asked, are you for us or are you against us? King Ahaz told the Assyrian empire, we love Assyria. And so Judah 
became a city-state of the Assyrian Empire. And it's possible to imagine that if your family was suspected of rebellion, the Assyrian Empire would lop off your nose or worse, send you or your family far away to the corners of the empire. This went on for 110 years until the year 612 BCE, when another empire to the south of Assyria named Babylon launched an attack and an invasion on the city of Nineveh. And in that year, 612 BCE, Nineveh fell and the Assyrian Empire crumbled. Now Judah, who is still living as a city-state in the Assyrian Empire, responded to the news of Nineveh's fall with a hearty and rousing, yes, we love watching the destruction of Nineveh. And to voice that pleasure in watching the fall of Nineveh, a man named Nahum, who was living in Judah, began to write his prophecy that we are studying for the month of August. Now, what drives this book forward is this sense that God willed the destruction of Nineveh to happen because Nineveh was ultimately a cruel and evil nation. This is summed up in the last few verses of Nahum's prophecy. We'll begin in Nahum 3, verse 14. Nahum writes, Draw water for the siege. Strengthen your forts, Nineveh. Trample the clay. Tread the mortar. Take hold of the brick mold. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will devour you like the locust. So what Nahum is writing about here is that he is feeling there is some sense of divine justice when after enacting cruel siege tactics on all sorts of other nations, Assyria and specifically the city of Nineveh is under siege and has to bear the brunt of that suffering from another empire. This is poetic justice and it proves that God exists in Nahum's mind. We then go down to verse 18 when we read these words of Nahum. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. These words of Nahum echo what Dr. Feldman would write several thousand years later. That Assyria would take family members and distribute them throughout the empire. And Nahum sees this happening to the people of Assyria, and he says, how do you like it when you're bearing the brunt of this suffering that you have inflicted on others? We then go to verse 19, which is the very last verse in the book of Nahum. Nahum writes, there is no assuaging your hurt. Your wound is mortal. All who hear the news about you, Nineveh, clap their hands over you. He then wraps up his book with a question when he asks, for who has ever escaped your endless cruelty? So when Nahum hears about the destruction of Nineveh, he filters it through his theological thought process. And his writing is basically this thought. In the end, God's justice prevailed and Nineveh got exactly what it deserved. This is the main point of the book of Nahum. So this writing stood for three to four hundred years until around the mid-third century BCE when Judah was being ruled or overseen by the Greek Empire. In that era, a man sat down to write the story of Jonah, 
which was set all the way back in 750 BCE. Now, the story of Jonah revolves around God asking a prophet to go to Nineveh and preach a message of repentance and the people of Nineveh repenting and God forgiving them. So when you compare and contrast these two books of the Bible that both speak about the city of Nineveh, Nahum is about God's judgment, while Jonah is about God's forgiveness. Now, when people hear about Paradox Church, they often associate us with liberal churches. And people have preconceived notions about liberal churches in that they have this sense that we love stories of forgiveness and we push aside the inconvenient truth of God's judgment. So there are those who would hear about our church and assume that we would do our best to avoid the book of Nahum. Or if we were more aggressive, we would actually campaign to remove the book of Nahum from the biblical canon because it does not suit our desire to understand God's forgiveness. Nothing could be further from the actual truth, however. I think there is a lot of value in keeping both Jonah and Nahum in the biblical canon. Now, last week, we talked about the value of the book of Jonah and what forgiveness means. This week, we're going to talk about the value of Nahum and what judgment means for us here in the year 2020. Because I believe that when we look at both these books and allow them to sit in tension, there are three things that we can learn from the book of Nahum. So let's begin with the first thing that we can learn from Nahum. There is an old adage in human history that is often attributed to Winston Churchill, but shows up in multiple languages and multiple cultures that predate Churchill. That adage is that history is written by the victors. In other words, when you go to battle with another nation and you conquer over that nation, then you get to tell a story of that nation because there is no one left from that nation to tell that story. History is written by the victors. Now, this is an interesting adage when you consider the story of the Bible. Because the story of the Bible begins sometime around the year 1200 BCE, when there are two empires, the Assyrian Empire and the Egyptian Empire. Now, the story of Israel begins in the shadow of the Egyptian empire with people who have been enslaved for 10 generations. After crying out, God hears their prayers and liberates them with a mighty and miraculous hand and leads them into the wilderness. Once they are in the wilderness, the people of Israel hear all kinds of rules and regulations that God sets up in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. All of these rules exist so that the children of Israel can ultimately set up a society. Now, I'd like to define society because it's going to be essential going forward. The definition of society, according to the New Oxford American Dictionary, is that a society is the aggregate of people living together in a more or less ordered community. So God gives the children of Israel three and a half books worth of rules to form a society to order their community and their shared lives together. Eventually, God leads them into the promised land, and around 1000 BCE, the first king of Israel, a man named Saul, unites the 12 tribes of Israel and formalizes these tribes into a kingdom. Saul is then overthrown by David, 
David dies, his son Solomon takes the throne, and Solomon begins to lead them into an era of empire. This is the richest and most powerful Israel is in its entire history. However, the people of Israel hated Solomon. So much so that after his death, the nation split into two with Israel to the north and Judah to the south. The next 200 years were tense, to say the least. And these 200 years came to a close when Assyria in 722 BCE attacked the northern nation of Israel and conquered the southern nation of Judah and made it a city-state in the Assyrian Empire. From there, around 650 BCE, another empire rose to the east, which was Babylon, and this is a very tense time in Judah's history, surrounded by three empires, Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. In 612 BCE, Babylon conquered Assyria, and then in 586 BCE, Babylon conquered Judah and forced the people of Judah, the survivors, to live in exile in Babylon. 47 years later, another empire rose to the east, which was the empire of Persia led by Cyrus the Great. He attacked Babylon, destroyed Babylon, and allowed the people of Judah to return home in 539 BCE. There they lived under Persian rule until 330 BCE when the Greeks showed up, conquered Jerusalem, and all of a sudden Judah was a city-state of the Greek Empire. Then in 160 BCE, the Maccabeans rose up and revolted against the Greek Empire, somehow won, and Judah became an independent nation for about 100 years until the Romans showed up in 63 BCE and then the Romans eventually torched the place in 70 CE. All of those stories took place over 1,300 years, which is essentially the time the Bible covers within its pages. And over those 1,300 years, we are introduced to empire after empire after empire. And empires are very different than societies. When we go to the dictionary, there are three definitions of the word empire, and I'd like for us to look at all three. The first is that an empire is an extensive group of states or countries under a single supreme authority, formally especially an emperor or empress. The second definition is that an empire is a supreme political power over several countries when exercised by a single authority. The third definition of empire is that an empire is absolute control over a person or group. If I could pick three words to describe empire, I would pick economy, power, and might. If I could pick three words to describe a society, I would pick order, justice, and humanity. Now, what's important to acknowledge is that the dictionary defines these two words very differently. But beyond the dictionary, there is an acknowledgement that we need to make. Every society is tempted to become an empire every day that they are organized. Society has to constantly decide whether they are going to prioritize people or economy, prioritize justice or power, prioritize order or might. And when you consider the story of Judah, which lived in the shadow of the Romans, the Greeks, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, and the Persians, we have this adage that says history is written by the winners. (laughs) But then along comes the nation of Judah, and they write these writings that we consider to be holy. 
And with these writings, they are asking the question, do you want to hear history from our perspective? And as Judah tells their history throughout the pages of the Bible, a theme becomes abundantly clear with each page that we turn in Scripture. The theme is that empires are evil. Well, of course they are, according to Judah, because Judah had to bear the brunt of all of these different empires. And the fact that Judah outlived the Assyrian Empire is remarkable within world history. So the first thing that we can learn from the book of Nahum is that the Bible is anti-empire. Now, most people assume then that the Bible is therefore pro-anarchy. But when we consider that the first five books of the Bible are all about God helping the people of Israel to set up a society, then there is only one conclusion we can come to. The Bible is anti-empire, but the Bible is also pro-society. And there is a big difference between empire and society. Which brings us to the second thing that we can learn from the book of Nahum. Now, when we consider the contrast between Nahum and Jonah, Nahum tells us that God is angry with the Assyrians. Jonah tells us that God is merciful toward the Assyrians. So does anger have place in a God follower's life? To help answer that question, I want to tell you a story that took place just this past week with my son, Bodhi, who is three years old. Now, my son was looking through his preschool yearbook and was reminiscing for what I believe is the first time in his life. As he was flipping through the pictures, he would point out who his friends were from preschool that he misses seeing because he's not in preschool at this time. Eventually, Bodhi got to the page in his yearbook that has the pictures of all the teachers. And when he got there, he pointed directly at one teacher and said, Daddy, this guy didn't give me applesauce. Now, this was over a year ago that this teacher allegedly withheld applesauce from my son. And when you consider that this is a third of my son's lifetime, this is a pretty big deal to my son, right? I tell you this because my son struggles with petty anger. And I think that we can all agree that my son needs to let this go. He needs to just forget about the applesauce that was withheld and live his life. When we return back to Nahum and Jonah, and Nahum's telling us that God is punishing while Jonah is saying God is forgiving, it's almost like Jonah, three to four hundred years after the book of Nahum, is telling Nahum, hey, you need to let go of this anger you've held toward the Assyrians. Now, if Nahum could respond back to Jonah, I believe that Nahum would tell the people who wrote Jonah, it's easy for you to say that God forgives the Assyrians because you never had the empire separate you from your child. You never lived under siege. You never had your nose cut off. And when we consider the fact that several historians describe the Assyrian empire as a very cruel empire, and when you ask those historians what was the cruelest thing that the Assyrians did, those historians will tell you, oh, when the Assyrians would conquer a nation, they would take the surviving families and break them up and deport them far away from each other so there was no local camaraderie to rebel. 
And when you consider that's the cruelest thing that a cruelest empire did, and you consider the family separations at the border that the United States of America implements as a punishment for entering this country as an undocumented immigrant, it's rather stunning to realize that America is a Syria in this story. And this whole separation of families is not what societies do. This is what empires do. And what's interesting is that living here in America, we know that this is completely immoral. And we know it's completely immoral because we have this statue that sits near New York City on an island. And this statue is the Statue of Liberty. And on the Statue of Liberty, there is a poem from Emma Lazarus that says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. And it's almost like we're telling the world, welcome, we will take you, we will bring you into our country and accept you from whatever past you have behind you. And here come some people through our borders and we enact the cruelest punishment that a very cruel empire had in its arsenal. For this reason, if you look at our series graphic from the book of Nahum, it is a picture of the Statue of Liberty crumbling. And that's because I believe if Nahum was alive today, he would be furious at the United States of America for separating families at the border. And the fact that this book is in the Bible, it's part of the canon, it's almost like it validates or it represents all of the people who have been oppressed or felt the sting and the brunt force of an empire bearing down on them. It's almost like the book of Nahum asks anyone who is reading, have you ever lived under an empire that is completely indifferent to your human experience? And then answers that own question by saying, I have too. And you know what my response was? I was angry. I was furious. This reminds me of what has happened and transpired this past week. To talk about last week, though, we have to go back a few months to the just horrific murder of George Floyd at the hands of white supremacist police officers. In response to the murder of George Floyd, there has been an unprecedented amount of protests that represent a cultural waking up uh, that has come far too late uh, in the fact that the country is saying we cannot allow racially motivated police brutality and murder to continue in this country. And this is long overdue because of white Americans' willingness to admit and accept the white supremacy in themselves as well as in this nation. What we can all agree on is that awareness has never been higher than it is right now that racially motivated police brutality exists which makes what happened in Kenosha, Wisconsin, all the more heinous when you consider the awareness that the country is going through right now. Just this past week in Kenosha, a man named Jacob Blake was trying to break up a fight when police arrived on the scene. They came out with their guns drawn, and because he saw police officers with their guns drawn, Jacob Blake refused to follow their orders. He then started to walk back to his car to escape the police officers, and upon going toward his car, they shot him seven times in the back. Now, Jacob Blake is not dead. He is in a hospital recovering. 
He currently has paralysis. There are some health officials who say he will have it for the rest of his life and others who say that he will make some form of recovery. A few days after this shooting occurred, Latitra Weidman, Jacob Blake's sister, stood up and began to address the public about what she was going through. She did not introduce herself. She just walked up to the microphone and said, I am my brother's keeper. She then went on to say, so many people have reached out to me telling me that they're sorry that this happened to my family. Well, don't be sorry, she said. I'm not sad. I'm not sorry. I'm angry. Now, Latitra Weidman was not alone in her anger. There were several demonstrations and protests that were very peaceful taking place in the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin. And there were also some unpeaceful protests that were basically asking, why won't anyone do anything about this? These riots occurred at night, and there were several white people who saw buildings being burned and were more offended by the burnt buildings than they were by the seven shots fired in Jacob Blake's back. One of those that took particular offense at the sight of burning buildings was a 17-year-old from Illinois named Kyle Rittenhouse. And on Tuesday night, Kyle Rittenhouse got in his car in Antioch, Illinois, drove over 35 minutes away to Kenosha, Wisconsin with a fully loaded AR-15 rifle, got out of his car and decided he was going to defend some buildings in a town that he did not live in. As the night wore on, Kyle Rittenhouse allegedly shot three different people, two of which are now dead. One person who is in critical condition. The very next day on Wednesday morning, the police chief of Kenosha, a man named Daniel Miskinis, was asked about the three people who had been shot. He responded by saying everybody involved was out after the curfew. I'm not going to make a great deal of it, but the point is the curfew is in place to protect. Had persons not been out involved in violation of that, perhaps the situation that unfolded would not have happened. Just a quick recap here. The police chief of Kenosha, Wisconsin, when asked about three people who have been shot, does not respond with empathy, but instead says, well, they would have followed the rules. They wouldn't have gotten shot. They're to blame for their own suffering. When you compound that with the problem that he takes no ownership for the fact that his police department is the group that shot Jacob Blake in the back, which led to these protests in the first place, his comments are at best tone deaf and at worst racist and ignorant. Not only that, but when you compare the horrific video of Jacob Blake being shot with the video of what happened to Kyle Rittenhouse after he shot three people, there is a stark contrast in the way the Kenosha Police Department handles people based on their skin color. Specifically, there is a video where Kyle Rittenhouse shoots somebody and then walks toward the police with his hands up, assuming that he'll be arrested. While he is walking toward the police, there are people screaming at the police officers, this guy shot someone. And we watch as three different police cars drive right past the alleged murderer who has an AR-15 dangling from his neck. And they don't use any deadly force. They don't question him. They can't even arrest the white guy who is trying to be arrested because of his white skin. Three different police cars drive right by him, and when they do, 
Kyle Rittenhouse on the video looks around, kind of shrugs, and then walks off into the night, having avoided arrest after shooting three people. To make matters even worse, there is a video circulating where Kyle Rittenhouse is out with other armed militia members or terrorists, I would call them, and police stop them and start talking to them and they ask, is there anything you need? And Kyle Rittenhouse says, well, do you have any water? And they say, yeah, we can get you some water. They hand him some water right before he's about to go and kill people. And the police officer on the video tells Kyle Rittenhouse, we appreciate you guys. We really do. It's really sad when you consider that the police chief just a few hours later will say, well, you know, they shouldn't have been out after curfew. Well, why didn't his officers try to send him home because the curfew was in place? To make matters even worse, anyone under the age of 18 who open carries a firearm is guilty of a class A misdemeanor. The cops should have carted Kyle Rittenhouse with his AR-15 and they failed to do that. And because they failed to do their job, Three people got shot, two of whom are now dead. And so here comes the police chief saying, well, you know, if people would have followed the curfew, none of this would have happened. No, your police department caused all of this. And for that reason, the ACLU has asked for police chief Daniel Miskinis' immediate resignation. And I think that we can all agree that the Kenosha Police Department is completely incapable of doing the job that their city hired them to do. And if that situation just wasn't crazy enough for you, we live in the year 2020, which means that there are people who are adamantly defending Kyle Rittenhouse. Aubrey Huff, who has won two World Series and played Major League Baseball for over 10 years, tweeted on August 27, Kyle Rittenhouse is a national treasure. Ann Coulter, who is a conservative commentator with over 2 million Twitter followers, retweeted somebody saying, I want Kyle Rittenhouse as my bodyguard. She retweeted it by telling the world, I want Kyle Rittenhouse as my president. And Tucker Carlson, who has over 4 million viewers each and every night on his cable news television show, the most watched news show in all of America, asked the question, how shocked are we that 17-year-olds decided that they needed to maintain order when no one else would. Now, I can't believe that I have to clarify this, but in case you're wondering where Paradox stands on the whole murder debate, we believe that murder is a sin. So much so that we believe that God carved this rule into stone with God's own finger. And yet we have influential white Americans today defending murder because they have a strong interest in America being a white supremacist empire. The empire works for them. Why would Tucker Carlson want things to change when the empire has been nothing but great for him? And when we look at this whole saga and America's response to a police department shooting an unarmed black man in the back seven times. I have only one reaction. I am angry. And it's here that upon hearing about my anger, people could respond by saying, why Craig, why do you have to preach and tell everyone about how you hate America? I wanna be very clear. I don't hate America. However, I am angry with America whenever we decide to be an empire 
instead of a society. And when we consider that Nahum wrote these words about how God is angry with the empire of Assyria, I am here today to tell you that I can't think of a more biblical reaction to the empire of America than anger specifically around the horrific events that have unfolded in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The second thing that we can learn from the book of Nahum is that anger and opposition toward the empire is holy. If it wasn't holy, then the book of Nahum would not be in the Bible. Which brings us to the third thing that we can learn from the book of Nahum. Now, whenever a tragedy like a plane crash happens, there is a period of grief and mourning that ripples across the nation. After we grieve from the loss that we feel from this tragedy, there is a comprehensive review of what went wrong in that plane crash. Engineers examine the crash to see if it was a mechanical failure that needs to be improved in future models. Pilots review what the pilots did and whether or not they contributed to the failure of the aircraft. Air traffic controllers look at what they did and see if they contributed to the crash. All of this review leads to reform and an update as to how we build and control airplanes to ensure that something like this does not happen again. This review in light of a tragedy is simply what societies do. When you look at how we board airplanes, there is often a long and extraneous line that gets us through security. We go through these long lines and we arrive at airports early and we take off our shoes, all because we've seen what happens when we don't take aircraft security seriously. I imagine one day my kids will ask me why the security is so extensive at airports and I will tell them it wasn't always like this. Before 2001, it used to be much easier to just walk on an airplane. But after that tragedy occurred, we went back and reviewed all of our processes to make sure something like this never happened again, which is why we go through the security that we go through today. We do this because this is what societies do. Here in California, one of the great fears that many Californians have is the fear of the next big earthquake. Now, what some people understand and what some people don't is that shortly after an earthquake occurs anywhere in the United States of America, there is a comprehensive review as to why some buildings stood up and why some buildings collapsed. And after this review is put out and published, there is always revisions that occur within the International Building Code to ensure that when the next earthquake hits, buildings are less dangerous to live and work in. We do these reforms because this is what societies do. However, in 2017, a horrific event occurred when a lone shooter opened up fire on a music festival in Las Vegas and killed over 50 people. Because he did this with a gun, there were no reviews. There were no reforms. Some people tried to ban bump stocks and then stopped when they ran into the full force of the NRA. And after this tragedy occurred, America almost shrugged and said, eh, it's the price we pay for owning our guns. This is not what societies do. And when we consider that the gun is a representation of military might, 
And the fact that guns are off limits when it comes to reform, well, this inaction toward firearms is exactly what empires do. The same can be said for police brutality. Because earlier this year, George Floyd was murdered and America said, we can't have this anymore. Specifically, California said, we've got to make sure that this murder does not happen in our state. And so some organizers put together a bunch of rules to make sure that the murder of George Floyd would not happen here on the West Coast. Just this past week, on August 27, the Los Angeles Times reported on the progress of those reforms and how almost every one of them has been voted down by our legislators. The author of this article is a woman named Anita Chabria, and she writes this. She says, some of the measures that failed to advance include a proposed law to require fellow officers to intervene if they witnessed excessive force. Another is a plan to streamline oversight boards of sheriff's departments. And another is an attempt to further constrict how police use deadly force. She then went on to write about how all of these measures were overwhelmingly supported by the people of California. She says that 80% of people who responded to inquiries about these measures favored creating laws that would make it easier to prosecute police officers who use excessive force, 78% favored banning chokeholds, and 70% favored giving civilians the right to sue officers for misconduct and excessive force. And even though there is an overwhelming majority that support these measures, these measures were voted down because we have a very hard time in America reforming our police departments. And when you consider that the police symbolizes the law of the empire, it becomes apparent that when we rise our police force above reform, that this is what empires do. To make matters even worse, Anita Chabria talks about why these measures did not pass despite overwhelming public support. She said backers blame several factors from external sources, a shortened session due to the coronavirus and the urgency of focusing on wildfires to fierce opposition from law enforcement unions, which have long been major power players in Sacramento. So the police unions were the ones opposing police reform. In other words, police officers are preventing police reform from happening here in California. And police departments across the state saw the murder of George Floyd and rather than responding, oh my goodness, we need to ensure that never happens here, they responded by saying, yeah, we don't struggle with that. It's not a big deal here in our department. I think there's a real practical and important application in the middle of all of this. If we view ourselves or our work as being beyond reform, then our sins can never be redeemed. This was captured in Letitra Weidman's speech, who is the sister of Jacob Blake, when she said, I don't want your pity. I want change. She doesn't want flowers from police officers. She doesn't want sympathy cards. She wants police officers who are willing to look at their departments and make changes to ensure that Jacob Blake's across the country do not get shot in the back again. And right now, police unions 
here in California are refusing to change because they don't think they have a problem. How different would our empire be if police officers were the ones who were the most outraged by these shootings of unarmed black people? How different would our empire be if police unions were the ones who said enough? How different would our empire be if police unions stood up and said, we need to change, we are part of the problem. I believe it would be at that exact moment that we would stop being an empire and become a society. Because according to Latitra Weidman, even the horrific sin of racially motivated police brutality can be redeemed if police officers are willing to change. Which means that if we view ourselves or our work in need of serious reform, then our sins can always be redeemed. The third thing that the story of Nahum can teach us is that every sin, no matter how terrible, can be redeemed. And if you have wronged someone else, they may forgive you or they may not, but that has very little to do with redemption. Redemption can be found in how you change in response to the sin that you have committed. The greatest teachers we have in this life are the mistakes that we commit and how willing we are to learn from them. And the promise of Nahum is that every sin, no matter how terrible, can be redeemed. And so, my brothers and sisters and friends, may we have the courage and the humility to be willing to look at our sins and ask ourselves the question, can God redeem even this? And if so, what does that look like? May we remember that the Bible is anti-empire, but also pro-society. That anger and opposition toward the empire is holy. And may we remember that every sin can be redeemed. May we see and embrace Jesus Christ in all.